Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles, or you can look at the insert to begin with, but you will need to turn in your Bibles as I don't have every, every verse there on the insert. I need you to leave a little room for an outline, and I will just start by reading the first 10 verses of Isaiah 65. You can find this on 623 and 624 in your pew Bibles. Um, we have come to the last two crowning chapters of this great book. This is the pinnacle of the book. This has been a buildup to this climactic point of what would be said here. The setup for this was the prayer that Isaiah prayed in chapter 63 and 64. Lord, bow your heavens and come down. Rend the heavens and come down. Come visit us. And now it's important to get the audience here so you can fully appreciate what is being said in these last two chapters. The audience is led by Isaiah He prays on behalf of the nation. Now, it's well known the nation on the whole have become pretty rotten. This is the reason for Babylon taking them uh, into exile short years after Isaiah's ministry, actually during the ministry of Jeremiah. So they're looking ahead to this. The the majority of the nations walked away from their namesake. Um, They don't look like Abraham's children any longer. They look like all the other nations. They're practicing the same religious stuff the other nations are doing. Um, On the whole, you wouldn't really know what Israel was. But there were faithful people within it who had been listening to Isaiah's message. There's always that remnant. Those who trusted in the salvation that God would provide through the suffering servant who was to come. Salvation's the same in the Old as it is in the New Testament. You looked ahead to the finished work of the servant. We look back at the finished work and we trust in it. Um, But that's a small amount of the people, yet Isaiah's praying for the people on the whole. That helps us when Isaiah comes back, or God comes through Isaiah, to issue his grace and his judgment. Where do we fit? Um, Hopefully all of us, when we hear of the sins that he recounts that the people are guilty of, none of us say, boy, I'm glad I'm not one of those people. We're we're convicted by it, and then we're drawn again to our Savior. That is the intended outcome for this message. But some will sit there stiff-necked and will not, that's not me, and who is this God that can tell me this, and how can he say he can do this or do that? That's a sad reality, but there are people that are set that way. But even the justice that God pronounces on those people is another manifestation of his sovereignty that renders him praise in the end, even though it seems harsh when we read it. So that's a bit of the setup for what comes before us. But remember, immediately proceeding, we feel like orphans, Lord, come visit us. We're desperate sinners. We know that our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. He's confessing sin. He's opening up the realities of their understanding that they are indeed sinners. But you are our Father. Come visit. These are the words that Isaiah speaks on behalf of the whole nation. Now hear God's word as I read Isaiah 65, 1 through 10. Starting at verse 1, this is the inerrant word of our God. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. 
I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks. In the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, as we hear these, these charged words from the prophet Isaiah, your word, I pray that you would Impress upon us your holiness, your justice. You're always right to be angry with sin. Lord, we, we see this. We make no excuses. We claim the blood of Christ. We claim his righteousness. We know we only stand clear of your judgment because it fell upon Christ in our stead. Lord, help us as we recount these difficult words that are spoken to recount how blessed we are to have your grace. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would compel us to holiness through this realization. Lord, we thank you for your holy word, for it is truth, and it sanctifies us. In Jesus' name, amen. Indeed, these last two chapters are the grand finale. There have been several times along the way that you could have stopped the book of Isaiah and said, well, that, that's got to be, that's the climax. But now it's really ramped up. Up to this point, it had been on smaller levels, talking about them in their immediate plight, and God saves them from Assyria. Then he looks ahead to their return from the exile and gives praise to God, recounts their sins, talks about God's grace. Now, though, we're on the mountaintop of this prophecy, and the prophet himself doesn't know everything, uh, all that it means. It's stuff that's going to come to pass still, the new heavens and the new earth. It links up with the book of Revelation as we get into the last two chapters. This is the beginning of that finale. It reminds me of when I was growing up. Um, I lived uh, in a relatively small town, and there was a big fields behind our house, and we had a porch. And every year there was this amusement park about a mile and a half away as the crow flies that would have fireworks displays. And it got to be a funny joke, but my dad would sit there on the porch as we watched, and he'd say, this is the grand finale. This must be the grand finale. He'd say it every time there was more than two fireworks that went up at once. I mean, these were low budget, like one go up, pop, another one go up, pop. And then pop, pop, grand finale must be coming. It must be here. Um, and finally, the thing would light up. And even to this day, whenever I see a firework, I just start saying that early just because it reminds me of dad and just it annoys my kids. It's just one of those things dads do. You know, this is a book, though, there are multiple times, 66 chapters. Compared to the other prophets, it's quite big. You really could say there are several mountaintops where he peaked in his message to the Israelites. But what's so special about Isaiah is that it is building up towards a picture of God's final justice. And back at the beginning of studying this prophecy, I challenged us to get out of our short lifespan view. We live really short lives. I think I've told you before um, almost every Saturday, I just kind of walk for a couple miles after in this area, and I walk through the cemetery and kind of read the stones. And it's amazing how the longest people's lives, when, you, when they're lived, you look at how, what a blip on the radar that is for all of time. So we don't live that long. So for God to speak of what we, the way we live the longest, which is an eternity, it, that's helpful to us. And this picture is what that will be like, the peace that he will bring to those who are in Christ. That gives us relief in the difficulties today, knowing they won't always last. Even as good as life is, it's got many miseries. 
And looking forward to that helps us know what is sure and be true to God now because we know what is coming. That's a lot of what the prophets are doing. That was true for them. It's true for us. We look forward to the the final consummation of things the way they look forward to the Messiah coming. We know it will happen. We know it's true. God's word doesn't lie. It's never failed. So we read with that mindset. Now, with that, we see God bringing grace and judgment in the climax of this great book. And here we are starting chapter 65. Chapter 64, you could, you could boil it down to, Lord, come visit us. Bow your heavens and come down. Verse 1, chapter 65, here I am. I'm here. Now the people who trusted in him would understand that. There are those who thought just by their bloodline or their namesake, God should be relieving them of any kind of distress, not taking into account any of their own devotion or practices. But as they cry out through the voice of Isaiah, Come visit us, bow down, you've forgotten us, you've forgotten our, who we are, your name's not implanted on us any longer. God says in verse 1, here I am. Look at the verse in its entirety. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. Now some say this must be a reference to the Gentiles. I believe that here God is just using the same labeling that they use for themselves through Isaiah's prayer. When he said, we're, we're not identified with Abraham, we're orphans. He's just saying, yeah, you're, he's acknowledging, yeah, that's exactly how you look. And, and I've been here calling, and you have not been responding. On the whole, it's not that there isn't a faithful remnant, but on the whole, they weren't. God speaks now to change any thought of him being aloof, or that he was staying up in heaven and not coming down. He speaks to correct the understanding that came through Isaiah's prayer of the people about his nearness. He speaks to clarify his availability for all the previous years. I was ready, verse 1, to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. God says, I wasn't hiding in heaven. I wasn't closing my eyes to you. I'm right here. One commentator rightly labels this a show of the eagerness of God to display himself to his people. You know, it's not very dignified, this phrase in the second part of verse 1. Here I am, here I am. Uh, maybe a way to describe it, you maybe have had this happen where you call out in a crowded room to somebody, nobody hears you call, or the person doesn't hear you call, but everybody else. I was in, a, about 10 years ago, I was in a store called Barnes & Noble. These are stores that if you wanted to buy a hard copy book, you would go to that store and buy one. And so I was in this store, it's bigger than this room, and stacks of books, and there was a coffee shop in the corner, and I was at a table paging through a book I was interested in. I, I mean, you know, 100 pages into a book I was, gonna, I was interested in. And so I look over, and I see an elementary teacher of mine, long retired. I didn't even know their first name, I just knew who they were. And so I yell out, uh, I yell, just yell out to the person. Now you think I'm so excited to see them, but they're a long way away. I mean, I'm talking to where the doors are. I yell out to them. It's kind of library-like in there. It's a little bit quiet. And people looked at me, but I thought if the person responds, who cares if I'm embarrassed a little bit? I don't know anyone around here anymore anyways. It's been 10 years. And so they keep walking, though. They don't hear me. So I say it again. I say it three times. And, and by this time, people are annoyed at the guy who's yelling across the place to their friend. And before you know it, they're out the door in the car that was waiting for them and gone. And I was making my way halfway to it, and I'm standing there after I've called out three or four times. And I kind of, you know, go back to where I was. You know, the picture here is a bit of, it's on purpose. God is depicting himself in such a way. I'm calling to you, but you are not hearing me. I'm call, it's not dignified how he's calling. 
Here I am. Here I am. I mean, does the God of the universe have to say that? Well, apparently the people were so closed at this moment, they didn't even recognize that he was here, that he was with them. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. In our life, there are times when we think God's not near us. Usually that is in a time where we have closed ourselves off in some way. It can be with regard to unconfessed sin, something we are holding back. And we saw that in the chapter before this. Remember the process of the prayer that Isaiah prayed? He actually got to confessing sin, and by the end of it, there was a nearness. That's kind of what happens when we pray. We start to realize, I can't keep this from God, and we confess. But as we close up ourselves, we become, we we, we feel like he's not there. He is, but we're closing ourselves off to some degree, in a familial way. I don't mean to shut yourself off from God, your father, but just like in the family situation, you could have walls that come up between each other because we're not open with one another about the truth, which is so important. Here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. It's interesting because Isaiah admits this about him and the people. Verse, six, verse 7, back in the other chapter, there is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. And then in verse 1, here I am. I'm here. Our sin often will give us this feeling that God is far off. And God has a remedy for our sins. He is our mediator. That's what he's preaching throughout this book. And anyone hearing this message that would feel convicted about it knows where they need to go, to God's prescribed method of salvation, of being redeemed, to that perfect servant. Now, here we are in verse 2. Look there with me as you'll see God list out the offenses. We've seen this kind of list before in Isaiah. He gets very particular about what's going on in the nation. Nobody can run and hide when he, sees, when he characterizes uh, the people in this way. He's not making a big deal out of a little thing. Look at verse 2. I spread out my hands, it's like a, 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 in desperation you might say, all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices. See, he is duly offended by the sin of the people, our sin in general. They were practicing the various religions around them. And this is what it looked like to the best of our knowledge in 690 BC. This is when it was. So at this time, you have changes of power going on throughout the world. There was Assyria, then there was, of course, Babylon encroaching, and they're coming and clashing cultures. There's Egypt over here, then there's eventually Persia and the Medes. I mean, you have all these different clashing cultures. And with them, they don't really change the religions they practice too much. They're pagan religions where they have gods for everything. You think of what you know of the Greek system or the Roman system. It's always been that way among pagans where they would, have, they would build statues that look like a cow because they needed the, what the cow provided or, or, or vegetables because that's what they needed. And they would erect this thing, call it a certain god, and the next culture would come and take and they just rename the gods and sometimes there'd, become, there'd just be a multiplicity of different religions pluralistically working together um, it's more cultural. It had nothing, not, those gods never answered anything. Um, that, that's the difference between the real God and those gods. And so all this is going on. The world's shifting like this. It's, it's as multi-religion as you can imagine. But the people of God were called out of that. They were called out of a place like that called Egypt. They were supposed to be different. They were marked with a sign. They bore the sign of the covenant on their bodies. They had a temple they went to worship at. They had a sacrificial system that was very particular that pointed to Christ. So there would always be this distinction about God's people compared to the other people in the world. But now, as Isaiah, on the behalf of a faithful remnant, no, no doubt says, Lord, please deliver us, he says to everybody in the nation who didn't look like that, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people 
who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. Verse 3, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings of, on bricks. The Mosaic Code was very clear about where, how and where sacrifices were to be rendered. There was a mixed practice of religious rites. Superstition is what it was. Where the, the people of Israel even would sacrifice near the gardens. The gardens were places where pagans would sacrifice to make sure they had crops. That's one rendition of what they're doing. Um, they're on bricks. They're not, they're not in the temple. They're not doing it the way God said to do it. They're as loyal to these other gods as they are to Yahweh. People provoke me to my face continually, it says in verse 3. And they carry out other terrible pagan practices. Verse 4, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places. This is a, a reference to necromancy, this, this going to the dead for some kind of fortune-telling purposes. Practice the world over at this time. They, the people of God were doing this. And spend night in secret places who eat pig's flesh. That's unclean food at this time identified as such. And broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. You cry out to me and you want me, but you are not loyal to me. You have made other gods besides me. You depend on other things and not the one who has given you redemption. The first part of, part of verse 5. Who say, he's talking to the people again, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. This is most likely the practice of, they're crafting their own religion, their own religious practice among each other, and are uh, autonomous into themselves about what they believe. And you, this is the way I'm going to do it. You stay away, don't, don't scrutinize this, don't come near, don't check this with what you think. They're intrigued, Ortland says, by the mysterious rites of the surrounding pagan cultures, and God um, He's affronted by this. Now, it's important to say something about this because uh, you get mixed messages, especially in American versions of what's called Christianity. You hear it all the time. You may hear it with coworkers, family members. There's this idea that really ultimately religious, religious devotion can be expressed in various ways. And the religions ultimately all say the same thing, and they're all ways in which to God. Except for this, the God of the Bible does not agree with that. The God of the Bible is very clear that Islam has nothing for Christianity. The God of the Bible is very clear that Hinduism is a a hideous error of thinking about the world and the universe. Buddhism may be worse. Um, There's not this room with God, Yahweh, to share glory with the others. I mean, the God we've been reading, Isaiah, do you think he shares glory with the version of God that Islam calls God? No, he doesn't. Uh, This is not the God of the Bible, and it's certainly not Jesus. I don't know, the way people depict Jesus, they could not have read one verse of the gospel, the gospels, to think that the Jesus they're talking about, that thinks all the religions are fine, they, cannot, they could not have read the Bible. They just can't. Because that is not the Jesus. Jesus does the opposite of what most modern American evangelical preachers do. He runs down his audience. I mean, he doesn't build them up. He's not looking for the bigger crowds. He's looking at the biggest. I've got to whittle this down. And kind of, in a way, that's what's happening in Isaiah's time, too. It's an affront to God when we say these things. All the other religions essentially say, here's a bunch of things you can do to be right in the universe or with God or to be a God. Christianity says, here is what done is done. You must trust in this, this work. Vastly different. They're not the same. And what does God say about these things? The second part of verse 5. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. 
These are smoke in my nostrils. This pluralism you're practicing, this idea of all this other stuff is equal with what I've given you to do, that's smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Moitier says, all the day describes the constant irritant of false holiness and forms in the sight of God. And think about it, brothers and sisters, this is the, the, the Jewish people at this time who are supposed to be uh, the picture of the, the mosaic religion, if you will, that was so different. It was, it was monotheistic, just one God, greater than all the other gods, and he clearly showed himself time and time again. And here, they're still existing, which is just a testimony to God's watch care over them. Yet the most fundamental instructions given by Moses are as follows. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make to yourself a carved image or a likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. In a moment, we'll see exactly the working out. And that's not unique. That's something he told Abraham before in different terms. That he would ultimately be their God and they would be his people and he would bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them and he would make them a great nation extending beyond just Israel. And it was never the intention to stay that narrow. It was always meant to go to every tribe and every tongue. Their attempt to practice other religious rites and call on Yahweh were a smoke in God's nostrils, a fire that burned all the day. Look at verse 6. Behold, it is written before me. I will not keep silent. He's just recounting what he's even said in so many words in Isaiah already. I will not keep silent. I won't just let it go. But I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains. This is where the offerings would be made for these other pagan gods. And insulted me on the hills. We insult God when we take other things for our gods, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Few things, maybe nothing, makes God more angry than equating him with other depictions of God. And before we get too, I won't say high in ourselves, but too secure, it's not just that Islam is a false religion, and it is, or Hinduism or Buddhism, but your trust and faith and worship of your money is too. Or your house, or your job, or your friends, or this relationship, or that relationship, or your hobby, or your whatever else you love more than God at the time, or I love more than God at that time. We always struggle with idolatry. And God calls his people to recognize this and repent of that. And that's the beauty. When you hear this, your response, well, if you're in Christ, is to be, that's true of me. I, Lord, I hate that about the way I am, and we come back to him in this respect. That, that's how we know he's our father. We're his children, and his, when our father alerts us to this again, we recognize this. God brings grace, and, grace to some and judgment to others. That's the concluding half of this chapter. Look at verse 8. Thus says the Lord. This is a beautiful illustration that's lost on us a bit because we don't make wine this way, but listen, and I'll explain. As the New wine is found in the cluster, and they say, Do not destroy it, for there is blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake, and not destroy them all. Okay, the illustration is found there in the middle of verse 8. As the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, Do not destroy it, for there is blessing in it. This is how it works. They had wine presses. There were round stone 
around into a circle, stacked pretty high, and they would put the grapes inside. There were holes on the bottom, and there were more elaborate versions of this, but this was a common one in antiquity. Any family could have one of these, and they did. They had water and they had wine. That's pretty much a little bit of milk, but not a lot. So, the, so there's this wine press. They put the wine in it, and they stomp it down, and they get the juice out, and immediately the juice starts fermenting. It becomes wine. Uh, different qualities based on the grapes and so forth. But what was common is to let the grapes ripen all the way to the end where they almost were going to turn and become rotten. They would take the cluster out. They would look at some of the clusters and say, oh, this is no good, and they would, they would throw it out. But sometimes they would just pluck out the rotten ones or they'd pluck out the good ones and they'd separate them and put them in the vat. And here's the beauty. New wine would be the wine that comes from the juice that's oozing out of the grape without having to press it. They're so close they're so cra- almost to turning to where you just throw them in the vat and they already immediately start to ooze down to the bottom. And so you take that initial juice and make wine with it because it's the best tasting, the best quality. That's what the new wine is. So look at the illustration again. As the new wine is found in the cluster, so you need these clusters and you have to pick through them. And they say, don't destroy that cluster because it looks like there's a few rotten ones in there. Should I throw it out? No, no, don't throw it out. There, there's good wine in there. In fact, it says, for there's a blessing in it. You follow? So I will do for my servants' sake and not destroy them all. Isaiah, you're crying out to me. There's a faithful remnant, but the nation looks rotten. I could just throw the cluster out, but I won't. I won't because there's blessing in it. And he'll pick out those who are his servants, united to his servant, and those who are not will be destroyed. That's exactly what's meant to be communicated in this vivid illustration. Verse 8. The second part, so I will do for my servants' sake and not destroy them all. Now he goes into um, the promises he'll give to his people, and then he shows the extreme uh, judgment that comes to those who will ultimately get exactly what um, they deserve as justice. Verse 9, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Here's his gracious promise in Abrahamic covenant language to multiply from the small remnant of a people that's greater in number, and he will bring offspring, spiritual offspring. Verse 10, Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. The, the constant picture of the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal state is one of rest. It's one of peace. It's not that there's, I'm sure, way more to it in, far, in so far as how we exist in the new heavens and the new earth, But the way for earthlings like us, this side of the fall and before glory, to really appreciate what's coming is the vision of peace and rest. Because this life is generally completely restless for most of us. We're very blessed, especially in our locale, um, to have so many of the effects of a fallen world mitigated by the things we have or the place we live in. But even so, I know that everyone here has certain miseries in their lives, difficulties in their lives, struggles in their lives. And the picture of final peace for the people of God is one that gives us great hope. It gives us strength to live out the life we're living now for God's purposes, knowing this is just a short, short time in the bigger scope of existence compared to all eternity. So this picture, the valley of Achor and this, this span between Sharon and Achor, this is going to be, you're going to have this promised land where you can rest. And it's not just actual, it is earthly land in the new earth, uh, but it's bigger than just Palestine. His servants, his covenant people, those who fear him, those who wait on him, those who take hold of him, those who remember him, those whom he has chosen, all terms used to describe them, for them. 
He will give them a place to lie down. It's a beautiful picture of final rest. But now it turns from that grace to a realization to all who would hear, because there would be people in that crowd that I'm sure would be alerted by God's Spirit and brought to him. He does this through this kind of hard speaking or preaching. Verse 11, But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, talking about the practice of these other religions again, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Salvation is not about bloodlines. There's great blessing being born into the church, for instance, or in those days into Israel. But make no mistake, all of us must lay hold of what is put forth, Christ. He's talking to a group of people who had the message, but they forsook that message. Verse 13, therefore thus says the Lord, behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. He closes this section before the next section, which starts in verse 17, which is the beginning of the explanation of the new heavens and the new earth. He closes this section with a promise to give a clear identity to his people as he goes forward. Some people say it's a forecast of the church as the Gentiles are grafted in. I'm not so sure of that, but he talks about giving them a new name. And names are significant in Scripture, especially when he changes them. Remember Abram and Sarah, Abraham and Sarai, or Jacob was called Israel, Saul was called Paul. That's usually a change in mission and, and identity or, or an, a maturation of that. That's probably what's being spoken of here. Look at verse 15. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name. This is a picture of final judgment, most scholars think, and I think they're, they're right. At this point, there will, be, there will be a new name given, a new final identity for his children. In verse 16, so that he who blesses himself in the land... That's the place where God will lead us. Shall bless himself by the God of truth. The only time in Scripture, or I should say in the Old Testament, the God of amen. That's what it means. Amen means truth. So be it. The God of truth. Shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. Now we're in the promised land. We're in the place where we'll be. This is eternal state. That's what begins in verse 17. Because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. It's a beautiful climax to the grace of God shown in the judgment of God, and then what unfolds for the rest of the chapter and a half that we have left will be this explanation of the new heavens and the new earth. There's a blending of how this occurs when Christ comes and his kingdom is inaugurated in it, it, but this will be distinct. It will be known, it will be understood when that day comes. No one will be able to deny. Matthew Henry gives us good conclusion to this. He doesn't write much on Isaiah, but he has some very pithy 
well-worded summations of sections of Scripture. And I'll close by reading what Henry says about this last set of verses. In every age and nation, the Lord leaves those who persist in doing evil and despise the call of the gospel. God's servants shall have the bread of life and shall want nothing good for them. But those who forsake the Lord shall be ashamed of vain confidence in their own righteousness and the hopes that they built thereon. Worldly people bless themselves in the abundance of this world's goods, but God's servants bless themselves in him. He is their strength and portion. They shall honor him as the God of truth. And it was promised that in him should all the families of earth be blessed. And they shall think themselves happy in having him for their God, who made them forget their troubles. Let's bow together as I close in prayer. Lord, we look forward to the fulfillment of this promise that you give repeatedly in your word. We know it to be true. We know that and confess that this life is exceedingly short, maybe shorter than any of us here realize. But Lord, we know that there is a world to come, and it lasts forever. And Lord, we thank you for your grace there as well as your grace here. We thank you that our troubles will be forgotten. In the meantime, O Lord, with that knowledge, with that hope, give us strength now to honor you. Honor you by our honest confession that we know that our sins are as filthy rags. To honor you with our acknowledgement that it is only through the finished work of Christ that we may be saved. As people see this, O Lord, may they be drawn to Christ also. I pray as your word goes forth in all of its direct bluntness, all of its loving wisdom, that you would send your spirit, that it would have its effect, that you would turn people who don't know you to you and turn those who are in you already to a new level of passion and commitment and worship of you. pray this in Christ's name. Amen.